Welcome to Eurocron, a podcast about a wide variety of topics, including people, restaurants, travel, or wherever we can find a good story. And in some cases, maybe even create one. So let's get right to our next story. Jordan equips leaders to accelerate business transformation through decisive leadership, client-focused sales, effective critical thinking, and improved communication. As an engaging and respected speaker, trainer, and business advisor, Joe shares candid insights, practical strategies, and relevant examples that help clients generate cash flow, grow enterprises, and improve profitability in diverse and highly competitive environments. Joe is the author of Sharpen Your Life, available on Amazon. In in his free time, he enjoys fitness, running, photography, volunteering, and traveling the world with his wife. Personally, I've known Joe for over 30 years. We first met during corporate training sessions in which Joe was the teacher and I was the student. From time to time, from that time, I've considered Joe a mentor and a great friend. Joe, welcome to your cron. Thank you, Scott. My pleasure to be with you. Gosh, what what an amazing way to introduce this thing. Thank well, you. I, I, you know, I feel kind of weird reading it because I, you know, it's formal. So everybody that's listening, you know, they 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 need to know who you are, where you're coming from. But to me, man, you're just you're just the cool Joe Jordan that I've I've known for over thirty years, and and uh, you know, um, we in that corporate training session, I know we focused a lot on customer service because we were a very customer service driven company and and sales training would come later for me, but all aspects of it, man, Joe, just so you know, I have taken that stuff and those seeds you planted with me, those have sprouted in my career so many times. And I I can't thank you enough for, for what you've done for me, man. I mean, seriously, it's, it's been, Uh uh, it's, you know, everything. And I know it's, it's gosh, it's, changed uh, tenfold since then i'm sure so we'll jump into to some of that later on but uh, man so so many things to unpack here so many places we could start where where would you say is a good place to start your extraordinary story and, and this is kind of what i'm thinking is you know i don't know if you and i have ever talked about the beginning of your career and how you got interested in this field <laughs> That's a, a, a lot of stories have an interesting beginning, Scott. Yes. And um, my, you know, the, the you and I met when we were both in, in the staffing world. And I don't know if you knew, my introduction to the staffing world came out of desperation. Um, I'd spent a number of years in nonprofit work. And my wife and I moved to California in our second year of marriage with this plan for me to go and get a graduate degree. And the net net of it, it was the end of a recession. And it all fell apart. And so we were both in Southern California, neither of us employed, knew very, very few people. Um, and out of desperation, I one day went down to a temporary help company and signed up as a temp. And that was the beginning of my 15 year career in the temporary help staffing industry, which wow. is where you and I met, of course, in Northern California a few years later. Sure. Do you happen to remember your first temp assignment? I do. I have mentioned it often, Scott. I was throwing away expired Kool-Aid packages from a warehouse. It was a marketing company that had a warehouse full of demo product, and I was throwing away Kool-Aid packages for a whopping four dollars an hour. <laughs> so that was my that was my illustrious beginning. I like I went to college, right? And I'm doing this post college, throwing away Kool-Aid packages. So yes, that was my first assignment as a Tim. And did you ever drink Kool-Aid again after that job? I'm not sure that I ever have, man. I'm not really sure that I was. I was never a fan to begin with, but it certainly didn't make me sign up to want to drink it again. So what happened after the um, the Kool Aid gig? So actually, the way it all sort of began that there was a the staffing company I was working with. They asked me to fill in one day while they took someone out to lunch who was going to be leaving the the company. And during lunch, I think I filled an order, and um, they were all impressed with that. And they were having their company annual dinner that night. I was invited to go to that. And basically by the end of the evening, I had gotten hired <laughs> and got an entry level job with this staffing company in Southern California. 
um, sort of that's how I fell into it, literally. And it was, you know, so then began my career in service and sales and then um, moved into operations and marketing. And then after a few years at the corporate office with this company, um, flipped over and took over marketing and training. And that was really my foray into the training world. I'd really been trained. That was what my college education was all about, was, was basically public speaking. Um, but that was really my foray into corporate training um, was in that small company in Southern California. So you went to this dinner party thinking you're at a dinner party, but really it's kind of like the second interview. It, it was first, second, and everything in between, honestly, yeah. Scott. I, I Seriously, this person introduced me as this is my supervisor trainee. I think they called them supervisors um, at that time, and trainee. And then by the end of the night, she took the trainee off the statement. I thought, gosh, something's changed here. And sure enough, they decided to hire me in, in the course of the evening. So I guess I didn't spill anything on me or them or something because it went well. And um, I ended up my, my job, and that was, that was you know kind of history from there. So then moved to Northern California with that company, changed to the parent company. And that's when you and I encountered one another. So I was working with the parent company for that firm. So you were, um, you studied public speaking in college. Did you have, um, did you study marketing in all aspects of business? Cause I know when you're, you know, you, you may be majoring in say public speaking, but you're, you're also taking marketing finance and different classes like that. So were you kind of studying all aspects of that? And was that of an, of interest to you? That, that is, it, it was of interest, but that I didn't study that all because my degree is actually in ministry. And wow. so I was trained in speaking from that standpoint. So um, didn't have the marketing and didn't have um, all of that stuff. So that's really stuff I learned along the way, Scott. Um, and really dove into that marketing role, learned, you know, the fundamentals of it there, and then, you know, broadened into now what I'm doing now. So um, that was a lot more of the learning by doing part of it. Yeah. Man, I, you know, it, it's hard for me to get a, my head around how fast your field has changed. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm preaching to the choir, but but seriously, because you you started your career uh, was it sometime around late seventies, early eighties. Then early eighties, yeah, kind of early to mid eighties. Yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, you know, and that's when I was in the staffing business too. I mean, there were no computer monitors on our desk, and you know, there was my desk was a mess all the time. At least it should be if you were busy, and uh, you know, we still got it done with phones and all that, but. Um, what are some some training principles since you started, Joe, that, that have just sort of been common threads that, I guess for lack of a better term, call them classic teachings that just sort of withstand, withstood the test of time as you've taught over the years? I, I think how whatever the medium, Scott, however we engage people. And again, I was taught you know, how to preach. So stand up and speak for 30 minutes straight kind of a thing. Um, moved into corporate training where at that time it was a bit more lecture interactive, but that type of thing to, you know, where we met, where we were doing, you know, five day training classes, intense, very interactive and all that, yet long training programs to now, um, I, I saw a phrase someone has used, um, a guy I just saw who's a head of training for a large company. And I think he refers to them as, as training snacks or something like that, that we've gone from, you know, and I've built full multi-day programs and taught multi-day programs to now we're talking, you know, two minute, three minute, four minute programs. And I say that because whether it's the multi-day program or a two minute virtual program, we have to engage people where they're at and that that's never changed and the issue of always approaching whatever we're trying to help people develop skills or develop competencies around from the perspective of where are they coming from when they come into that environment so when someone walks into a classroom and someone walks into a multi-day event or if someone's picking up you know a podcast or a you know a mini training of some kind the need to immediately engage that person. And, and I think that's accelerated over the years. Um, you know, it used to be you came into a class and you spend the first 30 minutes telling each other who you are and getting acquainted and introductions and da-da-da-da. We don't even do that anymore. I, I can't remember the last time in even a classroom environment where there was any introduction. It was 
something to hook people in, dive them in, get them engaged in the training. Then you'll go back and even introduce the program. But it's just because we, you know, we live in a world where, you know, it used to be we planned things around 12 minute segments because we were conditioned for 12 minutes from television. Mm. That the average segment on TV was 12 minutes. Mm. Your average TikTok is what? 36 seconds. Yeah. So we now have shortened our attention spans to 36 seconds. So we've got to connect with people much, much faster and much more dynamically yeah. um, than we did in, in the, in the, I would say in the early days, I don't want to say early days. That makes me sound really, really old. In fact, <laughs> if you say I was a trainer when you were a trainee, yeah. that's obviously put, and then you threw in how many years ago that was, Scott, that's obviously dating me a little bit for all of your friends, but I'll live with that. Well, it, it just speaks to how much knowledge you have, Joe, and the history and everything. <laughs> that is, yeah. So um, what, what are, what are corporations hungry for when they call you? Hey, Joe, yeah. what, Okay, we see what you do here, but when we really need help in this area. I, I think, I mean, the, the last two years, I have done dozens, um, I mean, cumulative hundreds of workshops around critical thinking and um, collaborative communication. So those are fundamental issues that consistently companies of all sizes, and I could rattle off, you know, gratefully, I've had a chance to work with some really great organizations in the last couple of years. Um, through an association I do work with, but those companies consistently are picking critical thinking, collaborative communication. With that, um, companies have a huge need request around leadership development um, because that whole dynamic of what we need from leaders is changing. And so there's a, there's a very big interest in that. And of course, any company that survived the pandemic is now faced with how do we sell? You know, how do we how do we drive revenue in this post pandemic environment? And it's, you know, if if they survived it and they're still around now, they're going, OK, how do we operate in this new world that keeps changing every time we think we've got it figured out? So the leadership, critical thinking, sales, um, kind of the things you rattle off at the beginning. The reason I focus on them is that's an ongoing demand from companies I talk with. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned uh, critical thinking. I had a client today I was speaking with and she's getting ready to retire and the company that she thought she was going to retire from this December 31st said, no, please, 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 one more year. And we need somebody because you're the only one that knows how to do these three things in our company. And, you know, you need you need to hire three people and teach them all how to do this. And what do you need? And mm -hmm. the first thing on the list was I need a critical thinker. So let, let's dive into that one a little bit. Okay. <laughs> um, what is, you know, define critical thinking in terms of how you teach it and, and what companies mean uh, in today's critical thinking. When they say we need somebody, a critical thinker, what is that? Okay. I, the, the real, the essence of critical thinking is from the Greek word that means to separate. And so basically critical thinking at its core, Scott, is the ability to separate a problem, an issue, a situation into its component parts and figure out what to do with it. I mean, it it's something that, I mean, the definition is pretty simple. Doing it's a little more complex, but it's just being able to look at a situation, figuring out, okay, what are the pieces that I'm dealing with and how can I determine, you know, the cause of the problem if I'm dealing with a problem or you know, the, the course of action we need to take and then the appropriate criteria and options if it's moving on to making a decision. And that's really the skill set, unfortunately, a lot of folks don't have today. Um, and again, I'm not making that as a criticism of education. I'm a huge fan of higher education. I teach periodically at the Business Leadership Center at SMU in Dallas. In fact, I just booked to go back in there again in January and do a decision-making session with them. Um, so I'm a huge believer. But the reality is, Scott, you know, going back to, to college, you know, you're, you know, get us go, go through school. But the way you get a good class rank is you get the right answer on a test. And if I get more right answers on my test than you get on yours, I get a higher class rank than you do. And there's only one right answer on those tests. And just the nature of, I'm not saying it's bad, it's just the nature of the way we have to educate people. You gotta have a right and the wrong answer. And so we educate people looking for the right answer, and then we move them into a corporate environment in which 
Sometimes there are multiple right answers. Sometimes there are no good answers, and you still have to pick something. And that requires an entirely different skill set than being able to understand concepts even and, and produce them on a test. Being able to look at six things, none of whom are good options, and figure out what's the best one given the circumstances, that's a whole different way of thinking and skill set that people have to have. And unfortunately, are a bit lacking today in the corporate environment. Yeah, don't get me started on education. I, you know, big fan of college too, but gosh, the things they could change, uh, it's just the, the list is too long. Um, so I'm, I'm a young person and I, I want to acquire critical thinking skills. Where do I go? What do I do? I mean, a lot of companies are augmenting by bringing in folks and talking about it. So um, I'm, in fact, that's, what I'm teaching tomorrow here. I'm in Springfield, Illinois, working with a company um, this this week. I'm going to be teaching that tomorrow to a group of folks um, in, in the industry um, where, again, they're going, we want our marketing team to get more competent in this. And so they're bringing folks in to, to deal with it. Um, I, I think we're beginning to see some critical thinking courses in college curriculums now, which is great. I'm totally a fan of that, obviously. Yeah. Um, but a, a lot of it is is companies recognizing it's a gap in either building the course, buying the course, or bringing someone in to teach a course to help augment you know, what they're doing in their organizations. And it's, it's overall just organizations, I think, that, that recognize – um, we need to create the environment that fosters critical thinking, which requires two things, Scott. And this isn't original with me. There's a great little matrix that Harvard Business Review put out a few years ago that I use in my programs because it's, I think, important for folks to understand. And they juxtapose two things, cognitive diversity and psychological safety. And you need a high level of both if you want to have folks engage in effective critical thinking and right with that collaborative communication because the two really go together solving the problem figuring out what the root cause of something is really getting to the heart of it then making the decision then collaborating together on implementing that and so those two that's why those programs have been so uh, fundamental for me the last few years because they really go hand in hand so it's it's equipping folks to be able to get to the root of the issue and then um take things forward in a in a solution they can implement yeah yeah, I know in my business, we do a lot of root cause analysis, especially on the quality side of things, but it's sure. it's just a process of kind of peeling back the layers by asking the why questions. Well, why did this happen? Okay, yeah. that's the basic reason why, but then why, and then why, and then why? And having multiple people in those meetings to participate. And I think uh, you touched on something real important. You, you've got to have an environment where that sort of thinking is welcome. You know, like you said yep. earlier, there's there are multiple right answers, and there's mm -hmm. never one person with the answer. And I think those type of cultures uh, do better in in, yeah. in you know if they have that mindset. In my personal opinion, yeah, it's if you know, I, and I love this diagram that I saw from from Harvard because if if you have cognitive diversity without psychological safety, you have a very hierarchical, domineering. We fight a lot, but we just can't get anything done. <laughs> the reaction is you get into the low safety and low ideas, and that gets that very self-protective, what I call the risk-adverse environment, in which we keep saying we're trying to manage risk when we're really trying to eliminate uncertainty. And I, I challenge organizations around that a lot and say, okay, are you really trying to manage the risk, or is it you want to take the uncertainty out of the equation, which you cannot do because you never know the outcome of the decision until you make it. So, you know, it's it's you can't make that uncertainty piece go away, but that's that self-protective thing that so many companies get into. The real innovative transformational environments are where it's safe to have a great idea, it's safe to have a bad idea, and it's safe for anybody to challenge anybody else's ideas in the quest to really coming up with the, the breakthrough, innovation, insightful thing. And um, that's that's not something that I find a lot of people um, exhibit naturally. Yeah. Um, some people do, but it's, it's like leadership. Some people are just natural leaders, and then there's others of us that learn how to do it. Some people are naturally that psychological safety, innovative environment, and other people, they have to learn how to do it. Yeah. 
The other thing too is, is the sustainability. Like you can have a corporate trainer or you can have an individual take a training class or, or whatever, and they come out and boom, let's go. I got this now and, and they use it for a while. And then it old habits sort of start creeping back in. And at, how do you suggest companies deal with those type of uh, patterns, I guess? I, I think the, you know, I don't want to know if I, I don't know if I'm over speaking it, Scott, but as I've done this now for a long time, I think the number one contributor to the traction, get, gaining traction and training program and gaining impact from it is the manager of the person who went to the training program. Mm. Uh, example, you know, you go to a sales training program and companies send their sales forces out. The number one factor, and I'm working with two cohorts of sales folks right now in a sales training program. The number one factor that I believe will determine the success of this program is managers who hold people accountable to exhibit the behaviors and then consistently coach them to the behaviors they're looking for. That Without that, I'm like, Great, good program, people pick up some stuff, but your longevity of it will be diminished significantly and candidly, the company probably way overpaid for the investment because they're not gonna get the impact from what they should have. Yeah, that's uh, interesting you say that. I've got a, a um, employee that reports direct to me and she's going, she's starting some training next week and it's conflict resolution and things like that. And I told her, I said, uh, send me a meeting and buy. I want to sit in that with you. Uh, mm -hmm. I want to learn too. And then the, the plan is, and I told her this, I said, I want us to hold each other accountable for what we learn in there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I just, uh, I think that what you said is, is excellent. Um, yeah. There has to be accountability, accountability to, to have sustainability. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and that's the piece that, you know, organizations make these investments, they send people to training, they bring trainers in, and it's not unlike back in the, the staffing days when you and I were in that world, I, I laughed at the fact that I made a lot of money over people who thought, give me enough time, enough people, I can fix anything. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't need more people, you have another problem here. And it's kind of the same thing with, you know, keep sending people to training. And my belief is if you do not have managers, leaders, whatever you call them, who will hold people accountable, who will create the environment in which it's safe to try it and not do it well, you know, whether it's conflict resolution, when that person comes back and they don't do it well the first time, they don't well the second time, that's okay because we've created psychological safety that makes it safe for them to learn and then accountable to practice it. If, you, if companies don't invest in that, Scott, that was the way it was 30 years ago. It's that way now. It's just you lose the impact of the training if you don't have that piece built in then. Yeah. We, you've mentioned collaborative uh, thing or conflict and so it sort of blends into to this subject. Um, what, um, what are some specifics that come to mind uh, when you're teaching companies that, that on this topic, Joe, um, that I guess some fundamental principles that you kind of talk about with this particular topic. Yeah, I, I think fundamentally, Scott, we, we've been through, and I'm not going to get into a political conversation here, but we've been through a lot of conflict on the planet, in the world, circles of people. There's just been a lot of it. And I think if we've learned anything, we realize a lot of people are um, perhaps able to have an argument, able to have a disagreement, they're not particularly skilled at engaging in and resolving conflict. And I mean, Patrick Lencioni, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, that is one of the things that Lencioni identified as fundamental to a team is they can engage in and resolve conflict. Um, there's another study, the CEO Genome Project, found that the top performing CEOs in a massive amount of research they did a few years ago on that, you know, one of the four behaviors they exhibit is their ability to engage people in and resolve conflict. And so the, the fundamental principle I tell folks today is that, that we, we achieve consensus through conflict and collaboration, not by compromise and concession. Mm. That if we really want to create consensus and get people behind a decision and get people excited about something, the journey to that is conflict, positive, healthy conflict, and collaboration, not 
concession and compromise. Because all concession and compromise gets us is, you didn't get what you wanted, but I didn't either. And so we're both okay with that because the other guy didn't, so I'll live with the fact that we didn't. And that's that's not a healthy way to move anything forward. That's not true collaborative design of anything. Yeah. Boy, Dr. Covey really comes to mind. <laughs> Seven habits, you know, the win-win, win-lose, lose-win, and then yep. the compromise or no deal, you know? Yes, uh, yes. And, yeah. And, and yeah, the compromise, yeah, it, it's one way, but it, it's certainly not, like you say, everybody comes away feeling like they lost a little bit, and they're probably focusing in their mind more on what they lost than what they really gained from it. It's yeah. what I'm thinking, because we're, by human nature, we're kind of negative thinkers anyway, in, in my opinion, so... <laughs> But and, uh, yeah, interesting. And that takes courage, Scott. That's, you know, it, it takes courage for me to, if you're my boss, walk into my office and go, you know, Scott, I, I disagree with something or in a meeting to raise a counterpoint to your position. Mm. You know, I, I've always said, you know, if you're, if you're the CEO of the company, be careful what you say, because if you walk down the hallway and say, I don't like that plant, it's not going to be there tomorrow. You know, because people just, you know, whatever he says, we're going to do, you know, right. and it was just a passing comment. And I think it's the same way for folks working with folks in their organizations is, is it takes courage for me to engage in healthy, productive conflict. Yeah. Um, and again, it takes courage for me as a leader to make the environment in which I will welcome that from the folks that I'm leading. And it sounds like you're doing that with the person you're just talking about, which is fabulous. Because um, I think you're going to get good traction from the investment you're making in our training. I hope so. Uh, but I, I truly, you know, I, I love training anyway, and I love talking about this <laughs> stuff. And and uh, so I'm I'm really looking forward to that. But um, I, I felt like she was kind of like, you know, it all started from a, a conflict that she was having with one employee. And I felt like she sort of got most of it thrown on her. And I'm like, yeah. I don't totally disagree or agree with that. And, and I feel better sitting in it with her. I don't want to feel like she, for her to feel like she's on an Island trying to deal with this stuff by herself. So yeah. anyway, um, oh, that's terrific. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you brought up leadership and that, that is such a broad topic, but such an important topic. Let's start off with the basic question for you, Joe, what does leadership mean? I, I wish I could say this is original with me, but it, I learned it from Ken Blanchard, who really um, was my mentor um, from a leadership training standpoint. I had the privilege of getting certified in Blanchard situational leadership, I think, in 1986 or something around there, Scott. I mean, and it really, I mean, Blanchard Training was a relatively new company, honestly, at that time. Um, Ken had left. Um, Cornell, I think he was at, and he and Margie started the company. They've been going for several years, but still it was relatively new, new enough that um, Ken taught part of the class. And the second class I went through, he and Margie invited us all to their home for dinner one night. Wow. You know, so that was like, yeah, that was like, whoa, I have arrived. I'm having dinner with my <laughs> my you know, my leadership mentor. But Scott, Scott, um, Ken's basic definition of leadership, and I, I haven't come up with anything better, he says leadership is influence. It's not anything more or less than just influence. And it is, you know, how we influence people to help them behave differently, help them behave better, how we influence people's thinking. You know, that's really what leadership is all about. And there's so many different leadership methodologies and leadership things, but it really comes down to, from my experience, is, is are you creating the environment in which people will motivate themselves? You know, I year, years ago, I think when you and I were, you know, connecting years ago around leadership training, you know, someone taught me that it's like, you know, if it's a carrot or a stick, either way, you're still manipulating the behavior. Mm. You know, if I'm relying on external something to get you to do stuff, mm-hmm. in some sense of the word, it's still manipulation. I'm going, Scott, if you'll do X, I'll give you this. If you don't do X, you're going to get this. Well, that's not motivating you to do anything. I need to create the environment which you will motivate yourself, and that requires influence. Yeah. And I don't know of any other way to define it, Scott. Oh, that's perfect. Because what comes to mind is, you know, I, I sometimes uh, we'll, we'll partners and I will be meeting on something, and they'll say, "Well, what if we, what if we say if they do just like you say, what if we say we do this, and this is the award, uh, the reward, you know, financially usually or." Maybe it's a trip or something like that. 
And I said, man, guys, I, you know, everybody's different. But for me personally, I, I've got an approach that I'm going to approach the same way that I know that it works. And I'm going to be just as motivated and give every moment of truth, everything I got every time, not thinking about, well, if I do this, I'll maybe go to Hawaii, <laughs> you know, yeah. or I'll get my, yeah. more money or something. That's just in. in I guess another maybe a, a sports kind of analogy or whatever. When a guy's up to bat, you know they're they're probably focused on what kind of pitch is he going to throw. You know, hitting the ball, not getting to the World Series, even though that's the goal of the team, right? Yeah, yeah. If that yeah. makes sense. And so I think what you say about the 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 importance of creating the environment, we always hear lead by example, lead by example. Mm-hmm. And that. I think that's a very important part of creating the environment, but I think it goes deeper than that um, to, to what you say is, you know, uh, uh, going back to um, the fear, you know, not having the, the, the fear and, and having the uh, environment to be able to speak up. I love when my employees come to me and say, hey, I got a better idea or you, you suggested doing this and it's not working. You know, great. Let's talk about it, man. I'm so glad mm-hmm. you, that, you know, I've created an environment that I feel like you can come and yeah. talk to me in that aspect. That's terrific. Yeah, that is fabulous, Scott. I, you know, my, my belief inherent in this, and I believe you would concur with it, is that, that real tested a leader is what can people do and what do they do when the leader isn't there? Mm. In other words, if it requires your presence in, in any model of leadership that requires the leader for it to work, I sort of scratch my head on it. Now, I believe leaders are people and, you know, the, the whole concept of it happens through a person, all that is true. The net of it, though, is can I create that environment in which folks are work just as hard, folks are just as motivated, folks are just as excited to come to work the week I'm on vacation? as the days I'm in that office. Yeah. And I used to sort of have a test for myself as, you know, when in the staffing world, we go to meetings and, you know, regional people are just on their phones constantly talking and they're talking to people in the office and they're problem solving. And my quest and my desire was how few phone calls can I get at one of those things? Mm. You know, I, you know that, that again, when it comes down to leadership, critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration, the net of it, Scott, is insecure people don't do a good job at any of those things. Mm. Because if I'm insecure, I need to look like I'm an important leader. I I need to have control of the conversation. I'm not going to pursue in critical thinking. I'm not going to pursue the real root cause. I'm going to pursue what I think is the real root cause. And I'm not going to be looking at things objectively. So, So whether it's leadership or critical thinking or collaborative communication, all of those, the prerequisite is, to be a self-secure human being so that you don't need all these things and these people to make you look important and valuable to yourself or to the organization that you work for. We'll be right back. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LaVon Pitney is incredibly well-versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LaVon's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority. She works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as productive and enjoyable as possible. Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, LeBon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about LeBon's real estate services, please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805-8871. That's 713-805-8871. Or contact LeBon at sold at pitneyproperties.com. Somebody 
hearing right now I really like, but I do have some insecurities, and we all do, I think, as human beings. But I, sure. I want to, I want to do everything I can to to get rid of some of that. I want to be a leader. I, you know, where do I start? What do I do? Be um, brutally honest with oneself is the starting point, Scott. Um, I, you know. I, if I can shift gears just for a second, I've spent time with folks in 12-step in programs. And, you know, the, the first step in AA or any kind of a 12-step program is the first thing you have to come to terms with is I admit, you know, that I am powerless and my life is unmanageable as it is. You know, and I think that's the beginning of people beginning to deal with insecurity is recognizing Okay, you know, because a lot of times I'm so busy making it look like I'm not secure, I can't recognize the fact that I am insecure. And so it's it's peeling back the layers for oneself and, you know, having that quiet moment with yourself and going, you know what, That's th there's a lot of things in my life that are being driven by gaps inside. And and one of the principles that, that I teach people over the years and that um, I think is the recognizing point for somebody as they're beginning to deal with some of this insecurity is, is understanding there's nothing out there that'll fix a hole that's in here. So if I've got this insecurity thing, one of the ways to recognize it's there is realize how many things out here am I trying to use to prop up my sense of self, my sense of value, my sense of identity or whatever it is. So I need my title, I need my job, I need my importance, I need you know attention, whatever it is, um, that when I begin to see and it takes some honesty to recognize, okay, I'm using those things to prop up my own inside self. Then that leads us to that, you know, for some folks, it is going to be a level of a crisis moment, a recognition of, you know, I, I'm operating out of an empty place and um, I, I need to address that. And that's that sometimes can be, okay, a support group, some friends, whatever. Sometimes it's, okay, we need to go get with a professional and recognize that, that, there's some stuff because all of us come into life, Scott, and you know that all of us come in with, you know, holes, wounds, whatever you want to call them. It's just how big are they? Are the ones we can, you know, deal with ourselves or are they big enough that we're going, okay, I, I need somebody to help me get this part of me together, yeah. you know? And um, I, I know a young adult in their thirties who has chosen to make therapy part of their health routine. In other words, they go to the doctor for pre-checks. They go to the doctor every year for their physical, da, da, da. They also consistently go to therapy just because they know that makes them a better person. And that takes courage to do that because you know, a lot of people in our society go, oh, you're sick. Uh, oh, you're really sick. No, it's like if I had an insulin problem, I would take care of it. Well, if I have something else that I need to deal with in terms of a hole inside, why don't I in the world and I take care of it? Yeah, because it can make me a better leader, better worker, better everything else. Yeah, and I, I think that connotation of, you know, if you have mental issues or you're seeing a psychologist or somebody like that, psychiatrist, that that, you know, that's a weakness. That's being lifted now. I think people, are, it, it's becoming more accepted. Thank goodness, because yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, the flu, that's a tangible thing. You have symptoms that you can see and feel and you go to the doctor and you know you can get medicine to fix it. Mental, not yeah. so much. Um, so I, I, I think what that person's doing is good because even if things are going well, you know, they're, that's not going to last forever. So, um, and, and even if they are, if, if you feel like they're going well, maybe they can even be better. But either way, go check with, in with a professional. Yeah. The, the, yeah, I like that idea. Well, and and it's it's not unlike what I discovered years ago. Um, at a point in my career, I was working two sixty-hour-a-week jobs and absolutely destroying my health and killing myself, you know, to some degree, just over overworking. And out of that, and then years later, I really developed a model about how we deal with stress. And I discovered as a result of that chapter of my life, Scott, and, and some things I realized, and I think it ties to what we're talking about here, is that, that we don't fall apart because of life's pressures. 
we fall apart because we respond to life's pressures with inadequate resources. And I recognize that from a stress standpoint, if we can just use that broad general term, that often you know, you're stressed. And I'll say, Scott, what are the things that are causing you stress? And we'll rattle off the four things that are causing you stress. And I'll say, well, we'll eliminate those. And you say, well, Joe, I can't. You know, I'm a business owner. I'm, you know, a husband, father, parent. I, you know, I'm involved in I can't eliminate those stressors. And I recognize so often we're telling people, again, deal with the stuff outside. And I realize what you must do to manage stress, and this is the same thing with life, you have to create an equalizing force. But stress management is not managing the stressors. Stress management is creating an equalizing force. And I came, the little model I created at that time was the four things I think that create the, the equalizing force are honesty, a balance of control, personal responsibility, and ongoing renewal. And I recognize if you can get those four things down, I can create an equalizing force for whatever you're throwing at me. But if I'm just trying to eliminate the stressors and again, deal with my inadequacies, sense of inadequacy out there, it's not going to work. I come back to, and it gets back to your question about how do you deal with that, you know, insecurity and inadequacy feeling. It's through intense honesty with yourself, developing a balance of control of you're in, you're stopping trying to control stuff you shouldn't control and eliminating and let, letting other people control your life, the personal responsibility piece and then ongoing renewal. And once I realized that, I thought, yeah, it makes a whole lot more sense than getting rid of all the stressors in your life because you can't get rid of those anyway, huh? So let's create the equalizing force. That, that just adds more stress. I'm trying to get rid of stress exactly. that I, I'm trying to do something I can't do. <laughs> exactly. Let me add one more to your list. <laughs> so meditation comes to mind. I just sense that people are doing it more. I see it more. It's, you know, there's, I do it. I enjoy it. Um, mm -hmm. And do you talk about that topic? Is that something you personally do or is that anything in your yeah. yeah. I talk about it, Scott, and 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 you know, maybe not from as much of the you know more intense way that it sounds like you're perhaps referring to, um, but helping folks learn how to um and and so there's some interesting research around this recently that I came across that they're discovering we actually have two brain networks, and it directly ties to what you're talking about, that we have this task positive network that Right now, if we look at brain scans, you and I would probably have these certain areas of brains that are firing like crazy right now because we're engaged in a fun conversation. We're talking about stuff we're excited about, da 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 da, and all that's going on. Well, there's a whole nother set of parts of our brain, and they're finding this other network that's the task negative network, or I can't remember how exactly they're calling it, but it is that part of your brain that gets activated when you meditate you daydream on positive stuff. You think about that last great vacation you and your wife took. You, you know, reminisce about something really cool, not worrying about stuff, not fretting kinds of things, but just positive daydreaming, reflection and meditation. But that fires up an entire set of part of your brain that is not fired during the day to day. And where the research is going is that there's a need for us to nurture, feed, activate both parts both of those networks in your brain. And so to your point, meditation, reflection, daydreaming, those kinds of things, um, I read a lot and that helps me do that because for me, stimulating ideas in my head is one of the most energizing but also relaxing things. I just like to think about stuff. So that all comes out of that. But that's fired up a whole other part of your brain that doesn't get fired up during the day to day. Yeah. So there's some interesting research I just come across around that that I'm using more and more. And when I talk to folks about meditation, you know, I, I said a lot of people think it's just this classic sitting with an erect posture and having, your, <laughs> and, and it's, it's, it, that can be one way you do it. I, I never really do it that way. I have occasionally, but uh, meditation to me, like in martial arts, we call when we do forms, it's moving meditation. Uh, painting can be meditation for me playing the guitar is very meditative and very mm -hmm. um, I almost like to use the word therapeutic more than anything but simply to me it means just redirecting your mind and I don't yeah. know if that's what you're talking about you know firing off those two uh, uh, parts of your brain but I, I think that if you're focused on a problem you're stressed or whatever um, just redirect it 
whatever you do, if you lay down quietly and focus on your breathing, whether you play guitar, whether you go for a run, whether you read, whatever it is, mm-hmm. suddenly, well, for one thing, the stress goes down, which is immediately healthier, but all, also sometimes those problems, the clarity, it just pops. Uh, at least yeah. that's been my experience, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's our it's our Western brains versus the Eastern brain in terms of you know our Western mindset is everything is linear you know and I'm going from A to B to C to D you know one to three to four to five and 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 if I get stuck at four I'm either going to push through to five and six or I'm going to get totally frustrated rather than the Eastern approach of okay you know stop forcing there you know the jujitsu idea of use the opposite force in your favor and. And just that that to our Western culture is so foreign because we're just, no, I've got to get to the end of the road versus just relax, go another direction, let this go. And all of a sudden the answer, you know, is is there and, and you can find it much easier. But, you know, again, I, I the more I travel and you love to travel, I know Scott, but the more I travel, especially as I've worked, you know, extensively with with colleagues in in India, especially um, the more it's really challenged my own thinking about this kind of you know A to Z world that we live in in the West. And like you know, it works, but you know, they were doing something else for five thousand years before us. Maybe it's worth taking a look at. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. In martial arts, we call it the three levels: the uh, the hierarchies of defense, uh, avoid, deflect, and block. And, and, mm. that's, and that's the order you do. And like you say, using the other person's momentum, if you can just step out of the way, why block? <laughs> you <know? laughs> if you're not that fast yeah. and you don't step out of the way, but, you know, deflect. And, and then in the last, you know, it, it, when everything else is exhausted, go ahead and block. But, uh, yeah, some of those um, type of philosophies, they're, they're um, I really like them because they do open one's mind to, to other ways, because as you pointed yeah. out earlier, you know, we're, we're so programmed by TV, 12 minutes, 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. We, there's so yeah. many things that we've grown up with in our American culture that we're just programmed to. So um, I want to shift gears a little bit and kind of sure. direct some folks to some, some things that you write about. And uh, I know um, you, we talked about your book in the opening. I want to get to that, but you also, um, you participate in uh, leapfrog services. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about that, Joe? Yeah, a colleague of mine um, who spent many years doing executive search for chief human resources roles and, and those level of positions in companies. A few years ago, he and I recognized there was a gap um, and a market opportunity to work with executives who um, maybe they want to make a change but they don't want anybody to know they want to make a change. So obviously you want to prepare themselves for a transition without announcing it, especially in their senior role in an organization. Or um, there's, you know, the winds blowing around them that says there's a, you know, as, as Mary Poppins winds from the East and you need to be prepared. And, and they're recognizing I need to take some action here proactively. But anyway, we, we realized that there's a segment of the population that really would value having kind of a turnkey um opportunity for someone to just help them develop an effective resume and a, a clear bio and a LinkedIn profile, all three of which then you create really, you know, the brand harmony of those three things for an executive. And so we've been doing that for the last few years with folks um, who come to us for a variety of different reasons, but generally it's, you know, fairly senior folks in organizations that they're saying, okay, I just, you know, I, I need the stuff packaged up. And often they're not even going to use the resume to find the job. They just need it sort of as marketing collateral um, from that standpoint. So we've, we've started developing that. And then out of that, as part of the marketing, has grown um, just a really great opportunity for me to feed my love of writing because we periodically send out then a blog to folks um, that, in which we try to address some relevant pertinent business topics. And um, so I'll try to try to do some creative stuff with it and look some different ways at things perhaps people have not looked at themselves. And that's kind of where that, that has all come about. Well, uh, I was one of those people that grabbed something off of there. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I think one thing that grabbed my attention was uh, the title of it, I believe, is about your photograph. 
And you, you, <laughs> yes. you, you talk about uh, some tips in posting social media pictures, which is just so commonplace now. But, uh, you know, so many people probably do it unconsciously. And, you know, there's so many different social media platforms that kind of warrant different types of, of photographs. You know, LinkedIn is obviously the more professional business type social media platform. Facebook, the more fun you know, Instagram, the more fun kind of, you know, party and vacation pictures and things like that. Twitter, that's its own universe. Uh, but uh, um, can you talk a little bit about photographs and, and just social media and, and maybe how people should maybe consider being a little more conscious about that world? <laughs> One has to be, Scott, because, um, you know, it's like, okay, let's own it. There is no more privacy. Okay, that went away a few years ago. I don't care where you are, anywhere, there is no privacy. And so um, folks need to recognize that, you know, again, as there needs to be brand harmony for, you know, my resume and all that stuff, um, at the same time, there needs to be harmony between the way I appear. And I, in that little article you, you referred to, I make the joking statement of, you know, you, you know, if you're over 40 and your photograph that people are seeing is more than five years old, it's probably time to update it. The reason being, you know, you don't want to get into a networking meeting where you sit down and meet the person at Starbucks or wherever, and they go, oh, oh, that's you. You look different than your photograph. You know, why? Because the photograph's 15 years younger than you are now. You've got gray hair or no hair or something else, and they're looking for an entirely different person. And so it's it's recognizing that that for, for an executive, all of those things have to be considered. Um, you know, yes, LinkedIn is a different platform than Facebook. And the reality is if my behavior affects stock price, I have to be looking at all those things. There is no place in which, oh, yeah, that's just Facebook. No, it's not just Facebook because everybody's looking there. And I, I was on Facebook. I, I pride myself, Scott. I, I was in the first million people on LinkedIn. So I, I remember when I got an email from them saying I was one of the first million. And secondly, I was on Facebook way, way early in, in the game. And that's when I still remember a college student at a university saying, if I can get X more people to like this photograph, I will run naked across the campus. And I thought, sir, there is a day in which you're going to be looking for a job. <laughs> and this is still gonna be there, pal. You know, that's before we got into, you know, we even knew how to clean off the internet back then. Uh, but it's it's the recognition that, that that's all part of the brand harmony, Scott, that all those things need to line up. and. You know, my image on LinkedIn and my image in my personal life that there needs to be consistency because I, I and I've taught salespeople this over the years that even my appearance communicates what they can expect from me in terms of how I deliver. So I used to train salespeople that if you look great on Monday, but look sort of washed out by Friday, they have no other conclusion than to go, okay, Certain times these guys are going to deliver, but I'm not sure they'll deliver the rest of the time because this person doesn't look together all the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm very mindful of that for myself. I mean, part of that for me is I've created a brand when I stand up in front of a group of people. Um, there's always a pocket square. There's always a lot of color, if at all possible, um, because that's part of the brand. Very good. Um, I like know, that. And, I like uh, that. I like that a lot. I am going to adopt that. Um, those are simple things, uh, but um, like a lot of people, I was not conscious of that before. I, yeah, I wanna transcend because it's not just, you know, is my hair gray, but yeah, what you're wearing, oh, that's exactly the image that I see on LinkedIn or Facebook or, or whatever. And yeah, yeah it, it transcends and it's consistent and people like so consistency. Yes. And sometimes, I, you know, you'll meet, I, and again, this isn't a slam on young people because I spend far more time with young people than I do with my peer groups. So it's not at all that. The, the reality, though, you know, sometimes someone will say, hey, you know, so-and-so, he runs this startup. He's worth a bazillion dollars and he looks like you're crawled out from under a rock. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, he does. And when you're worth that, you can look any way you want to as well. Right now, you're still building the blocks, friend, and unfortunately, you can't look like him or her. When you, you know, and that's the reality. You know, when you've got that kind of money, you can wear whatever you want to wear. That's just fine. But at this stage in your, you got to be mindful that, like it or not, 
people judge the package first. Yep. So and you know, um, I love well, the take. I, I, well, they I, should they should like me for who I am. <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> but it's I, I, it starts with your appearance. That's part of who you are. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and unfortunately, it, it is. And there, you know, some of the research, Scott, that's out there. People judge a face in one-tenth of a second. And the bad news is evidence to the contrary does little to change that initial first-tenth of a second impression. So when I see your face online, when I see your face on social media, when I see your face in person, I will judge you within one-tenth of a second, and it's going to take a lot of convincing me otherwise to help me think any differently than what I made that initial judgment. And interestingly, the research also said the number one thing we judge on a face, first thing we judge is trustworthiness. So the first thing I'm doing when I see a face is, do I trust this person? And people say, ah, what my picture looks like, ah, what I look like, that's not important. Well, um, it really is, because it's really driving those, and especially online, those instantaneous impressions that are made. Yeah. And unfortunately, online, the impressions made online tend to be more negative than positive. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But if I see you online versus see you in person, I'll probably judge you more harshly online than I would if I met you in person. Yeah. Yeah. I When I first, uh, I went to a friend of mine in 2008 or seven or something like that in the early days of Facebook. And I said, you know, I wish there was a website or can you, I, I think I actually asked her to build a website for me where I could put all of my family pictures on there and my sister, my mother, whoever could see. And she goes, well, you know, they already have that. And she says, it's Facebook. I said, oh, really? And I looked at it and I said, oh, this looks perfect. And I, since then I've used it for that purpose. It, to me, it's just a photo mm -hmm. album. But it, yeah. it, you know, it's a little more of our fun side, obviously, because most of them are vacation yeah. pictures. And I do, I do love that they pop up, you know, oh, you did this three years ago, five years ago. You know, those are fun. But sure. when I did my yeah. LinkedIn picture, I went to a professional photographer and I said, this is for LinkedIn. You know, suit and yeah. tie, tell me how to tilt, tell me how to smile, you know, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I was just, I, I ran about this, Scott, and I was just talking to my wife the other day and I said, okay, my you know, promo shot I'm using was shot in 2016. I said, probably about time for an update, you know, because I'm the guy that preaches this, but I recognize for myself, it's okay. I know that the hair's a lot grayer, but, you know, it's probably a lot, little bit grayer, um, yeah. which is, you know, it's kind of, to me, it, it partly becomes just to tell the truth, you know, yeah. it is, it is what it is. We are who we are. Brother, you look fantastic. I mean, I know you've always been a healthy guy, but no, Joe, you you look, I, you know, like I said, you're my mentor. I want to be, I want to look like you when I'm your age. <laughs> Whatever age that is, I have no idea. But uh, no, you you have always maintained well, my friend. Um, sharpen Your Life, available on Amazon. What's the synopsis of that book, Joe? That really grew out of um, when I was doing career transition work, Scott, I used to write a weekly little mini article for our folks that were doing going through career transition. And I just, you know, kind of compiled those, re redid them, kind of compiled the themes and then rewrote the content and expanded that into a little book, Sharpen Your Life. And it's really designed to be 52 really short, focused, um, anecdotal almost kind of chapters in which folks just get some tips, some ideas um, around a variety of subjects about how can I just engage in my life a little bit more effectively. And so it's a lot of stories. Uh, I love stories, so there's a lot of stories in it, um, some historical, some otherwise, some personal, but just you know, tales and tips and ideas for folks of how do you just engage in life. And I and I kind of you know wrote it for the person who's you know, early in their career going, you know, as you and I both were at one point in time, gosh, if I'm learning every blasted thing I can right now, you know, the reading everything in sight. And then also for the person who's kind of at the stage in their career going, you know, to, to me, the epitome of burnout is the person said, life must go on. I'm just not sure why. And, and that person is at that point in their career of going, you know, I got, I got a bunch of years yet ahead of me, but I'm just losing steam. Yeah. And I need some fresh, you know, it's a change analogy to put I need some fresh wind in my sails. And that's really what the book was designed to do. And part of it was I, you know, wanted to write a book, wanted to get one written. I thought, okay, what's a way I can get something 
out there and done. And so that was, you know, we wrote that like 20, 15, 16, somewhere in there, um, put that out just as a way to try to share some ideas that I have and see if anybody finds some value in it. Awesome. I, well, I will definitely read it and we'll put it on the uh, Your Fun site and uh, so other folks can enjoy it. But I love the title and the way you described it. It's uh, definitely going to be on my list. And uh, what, what was that process like for you, Joe, writing a book? Ah, it's like, let's say somebody said once to me years ago, everybody wants to write a book and be a lawyer, you know, and <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, Scott, but you know, sorry, well, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to write a book. And, and I had actually written one manuscript several years ago, um, a big full manuscript and then just, it didn't see the light of day, but that's fine. It was a great exercise for me. Taught me a lot about writing. Um, this one, it was kind of, I really needed to get it done. And I was very busy in my work at the time. And maybe that's the best time to write. I don't know. Um, but I actually hired a guy who has a um, media marketing company to, you know, he was, he was working with me on some other things at that time. But part of that role was um, his job was just help kind of keep my feet to the fire to get that silly thing done. And he knew all the tips and tricks of, you know, I, I laugh. The guy that designed the cover is in Montana. I wrote it in Dallas. The lady that edited it is in England. And the guy that formatted it for, um, Amazon is in Vietnam. And that's how I got it done was I had a guy that knew where all those people were and he could put me in touch with all of them because I would have been floundering forever trying to figure out how to format it and all that stuff. But bang, it got done, you know, in days because I had somebody really coaching me through it. And I think the net of that is sometimes for a task like that, it just takes back to our earlier conversation, some level of accountability. You just need somebody to help you keep focused on it so you actually get it done. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm glad you did. You know, it was fun to get it done. Be able to say, hey, it's finished. You know, you can put the word author after your name, which I've wanted to do for years. Um, you know, have I made, you know, millions of dollars over it? No, not so much. But it Well, you, you are a wealth of knowledge. I, I think you should write a dozen more. Um, I can't wait, wait to read it. So uh, congratulations on, on publishing a book. Thanks. That's awesome, man. That is absolutely Thank awesome. You. Well, um, I know it's um, you're you're in uh, the uh, a foodie place, and and it's getting late for dinner there. So <laughs> I, I'm going to wrap this up with uh, what we call on your cron, Joe, our legacy question, and that mm. is, if in a hundred years someone is listening to this recording, what message do you want to leave for them, Joe? Those are overwhelming questions, Scott. My gosh, I and I don't want to give you a glib answer for something that that profound. So in a hundred years, somebody listening to this, what would I want them to hear? Yeah, perhaps um, a life lesson, maybe words or thoughts to live by. Just just anything yeah. that pops to mind. Um, uh, but, and again, this this isn't in necessarily order of importance. Although probably the first one is most important is that like you matter, and. You know, I, some, someone recently shared this with me, and it's, so it's not original. He said, you know, everybody's got a story and everybody's story deserves to be heard. And I think, you know, there's there's that for all of us to realize we matter and there's a place for us. And um, we, we need to feel confident, you know, moving into that place, whatever it looks like in that place, I believe, evolves lots of times. So it's not like I'm going to be the same thing throughout my life or my career, but, you know, all of those things can change. But it's finding that, having the courage to do that. And probably at, at the heart of it, folks, would, uh, Scott, is that, that folks would have the courage to be who they are. Um, you know, again, it's like I, that we, we don't fall apart because of life's problems. We fall apart because we don't respond with adequate resources. And I think the other part of that is is recognizing that um, we, we begin to pretend um, when we don't have the courage to be real and that people that really engage with life effectively are real people. And those are real people who are broken, who have stuff, who have issues, you know, and all those things. But they bring that in a holistic way to um, what they're doing. And those people transform things. And that's what, you know, from a, from a business, corporate life, all of that, um, that that's what it's about. And again, I, there, there's so much I could say in answer to that question, Scott. I just feel like I could talk for another hour answering that question in terms of, you know, the people matter, that 
they have a place. Um, and and I and I think part of with that is what we've talked about earlier, Scott, is they they need to lean into you know the the difficult conversations in life, not from a standpoint of trying to win them, but from the standpoint of trying to understand the other people. Um, I think that's that's the thing that you know from this collaboration standpoint. Again, my belief is I can back to leadership. I can influence you more only if I understand you. And I can only understand you if I ask really great questions to find out what's in your head. Yeah. So I can't influence, I don't know what's in there. So it's, you know, learning to ask great questions, learning to engage with people, learning to have that difficult conversation that allows us really to create the collaborative transformational things in our lives, our worlds, our companies. Um, that's when that stuff comes out. So that's a real wandering answer to that question, my friend. I'm, Joe, I've, I've asked that question a hundred times. Uh, I don't know how many podcasts I have now in, in almost four years. Uh, I love it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and listen to that several times. That was uh, awesome. I knew it would be, but really, really a lot of fun. And uh, always good to catch up with you, my friend. I, I love just sitting here listening to you. And, and now... I get to listen to you a hundred years from now if I if I find a way to pull oh, that That's just frightening. That's frightening. All kinds of maybe my here. grandchildren, but uh, no, I, I can't thank you enough for being on tonight, Joe. That was uh, oh. that was so much fun. Yeah.